Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Yal Yogev, CEO and co-founder of Anjuna, a confidential computing platform that's raised $42 million in funding. Yal, thanks for chatting with me today. Thanks, Brad. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. So before we begin talking about what you're building, can we start with just a quick summary of who you are and maybe a bit more about your background? Sure. So uh, as a background is, uh, you know, born and raised in Israel. I uh, spent the last 25 years in the uh, searching the enterprise security space. Uh, I started my current Unit 8200, which is the Israeli equivalent of the NSA. And then I moved to the private sector and spent most of my career in the private sector doing product management in enterprise security companies. I was uh, at Improva for the three years leading up to the IPO, uh, Lookout, which is a mobile security company. I uh, ran the umbrella product management team at OpenDNS. And after Cisco acquired us, I ran the, uh, what was the umbrella product management team, which was essentially the cloud security solution for Cisco. And I ran that product team. And after a couple of years at Cisco, I moved to a company called SafeBreach to be their uh, VP of product. So my background is basically enterprise, always been enterprise security and mostly product related roles. Very cool. And we've had a lot of founders on the podcast that are from Israel and they were in the Israeli military. And the question we like to always ask is, what was the number one life lesson or business lesson that you took away from your time in the military? So for me, the big lesson, and it's related to kind of where I was in the, you know, in the military is everything is possible. Basically, there's, you know, if you want to achieve something, if you want something to get done, you just need to find a way to make it happen. And anything is possible. Nice. I love that. And I'm sure that helps as you uh, continue to build this company, which we'll talk about further in a second. But two questions we'd like to ask before we dive into the company. What CEO do you admire the most and what have you learned from them and what do you admire most about them? Yeah, it's a great question. So I have two that come to mind and I kind of admire them for different reasons. And I'll, if it's okay, I'll, I'll name two. So one is Satya from Microsoft. And, and what I really admire about him is that I, I think he actually completely transformed Microsoft. And it was sort of amazing to see that. And what was really amazing is that he took all these sort of things that were sort of Microsoft kind of took for granted. This was like the basis of what Microsoft thought about things. So they were kind of they said no to the cloud and they, they said no to open source. And, and there's a bunch of things that Microsoft was kind of known for. And that was what was holding the company back. And Satya just came and kind of rethought everything from scratch. And that was able to completely transform the company. So that was just extremely, extremely impressive to me. And the other one, which I know is a little bit more controversial, is Mark Zuckerberg. And what I love about him is that like, we've seen all these extremely successful you know, founder CEOs who, you know, I think very, very few people on the planet were able to become a sort of founder CEO of a company and take it to obviously the size that, you know, Zuckerberg took the company and remained the CEO of the company from a startup to a very large company. Uh, but also what's even more impressive to me with Zuckerberg is that he, you kind of see all these sort of, you know, I don't know if it's a scandals, but things that these people get involved in, they kind of lose touch with, rea- with reality along the way. And the fact that he's, you know, still married to his girlfriend, you know, from back in the day, you know, raising a family, like it's just phenomenal to see how he was able to kind of stay very, very grounded, you know, going throughout that extremely insane journey he's been on. Yeah, that's such a good call out. And I'm, you know, I'm always surprised at the amount of hate that people have for Mark Zuckerberg, especially you know, people who are entrepreneurs or founders in the tech world. I think if, if you look at Zuckerberg and all you can think about are things that he's done wrong or things to criticize him on, 
it's really dumb because you're missing out on you know, a really amazing story there. And he's just done such an incredible job. Like the facts speak for themselves when you look at Facebook as a company and as an organization for what they've done. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Now let's switch gears and let's dive right into the company and what you're building. So can you start with the origin story? Sure. So I talked a little bit about my background. So I've always been in security. And while I was in my you know, role as my VP of product at SafeBreach, so reconnected with my co-founder, Jan Mikalevsky. And I've known Jan for over 20 years since the, our, we're both in the Israeli intelligence. And he took a different path. He went into engineering, engineering uh, leadership, and eventually went to Stanford to get his uh, PhD. And he got a PhD with uh, Professor Dan Bonet, who was one of the top cryptographers on the planet. And that's how he ran into the concept of confidential computing. And he got super excited by what that means and sort of the implications it could have. And he, he reached out to me and I got super excited as well, essentially for two reasons. One is, again, I've been in security for a long time. And when you kind of peel the layers of the onion of, you know, 80% of security problems, you get to that same root cause, which is once somebody gets access to your infrastructure, it's game over. They just have access to everything that you do. And a lot of what the security industry is about is how do you make sure that never happens? Or if it does happen, how do you know that it happened? And finally, there was a solution to this problem. A solution that even if they do get root access, even if they get full access to your infrastructure, they just can't get any access to your data. And that was super, super exciting for me because again, it can really transform the security industry as a whole. And the other thing that got me even more excited is what I love about security in general, and I think that's the right way to look at security, is that security is an enabler, right? If you build security the right way, then you can do things that you just couldn't do before. And I'll give you, you know, the entire banking industry wouldn't exist if we couldn't trust banks to keep our money safe, right? You need that layer of trust and security to be able to bid things on top of it. And this is, confidential computing is such a fundamental change in how we, we do things that it was going to change the world of compute. It essentially enables us to put data and code you know, in any environment. And that was such a big, big shift. And the possibilities was just so endless that I said, oh, I had to be a part of this. So I left my job at SafeBridge to go to go start the company with Yarn. And was that scary for you to make that jump? Or what was your, your state of mind as you made that? And yeah, what did you talk about with your, your wife? And I think you mentioned you have kids now. Like, what were those conversations like? No, no, you're touching on, on a very, very good point, which is Starting a company is definitely scary and it's definitely, you know, on the financial side, I was married. I had two very young kids when, when I was uh, starting the company. So it was definitely a big, you know, leap, you know, to take both on the financial side, but also, you know, in terms of how much time you have to commit to this. I mean, you know, you need a very, very supporting spouse to go do something like this, especially if you have kids. But to me, it's funny. I've heard um, Bezos talk about this and why he started Amazon and how he just like, this is exactly why I, I started the company. I was kind of looking at this and said, this is, this is something that excites me so much. And I always knew I wanted to start a company and, and, you know, someday I don't want to look back, you know, when I'm 60 or 65 and regret not doing this. So I think I would be, you know, I'd regret much more not doing this looking back than if I did this and it, you know, failed miserably. And we've had, you know, a year with, you know, no, no salary. To me, it was just something that I knew I would regret not doing. And that was kind of what kind of pushed me over the edge. Nice. That's super interesting to hear. And I think that's helpful for others who are listening in, who are maybe in technical roles and considering starting a company. So always really nice to have that perspective. Now, something else I wanted to ask you about, can you just explain to us what confidential computing is? I feel like that's a, a term that I'm seeing used now a lot more or more often, I should say. And if you can just walk us through what that is and how it works, that would be awesome. Sure. It goes back to kind of what I've talked about, which was 
When somebody gets access to the infrastructure, especially root access, they just have access to everything happening on that infrastructure. And essentially the reason why that is, is that when an application needs to process data, it has to decrypt it and load it into memory to process it. And at that point, if somebody has access to the infrastructure, they can just look inside the memory and get access to the data. What sort of happened was that the CPU vendors, so Intel, AMD, NVIDIA, ARM, have added something into the chipset to finally solve that problem. To basically make sure that even if you do have you know, full access, physical or root access to a machine, you're not going to be able to look at that data and essentially have access to the data being processed. And that is essentially what confidential computing is, is how do you compute things in a confidential way without anybody with any type of access, you know, being able to see your data. And actually, let me, let me tell you kind of a quick story on how it started, because I think it's just a super interesting one, but it actually started on the phones. And I don't know if you ever thought about, you know, what happens if you lose your, your mobile device, right? You have biometric data on the phone, your fingerprint or face ID, which is obviously super, super sensitive. And a mobile device is something that can get lost pretty easily. And the short answer is that you don't have to worry about this because Apple was the first, but then all the other you know, companies followed suit, is that they're using a confidential computing environment that was added in the ARM chipset, something called uh, Trust Zone, to make sure that even if you do lose your phone and somebody gets physical access to it, they're not going to be able to break into that environment and steal your uh, biometric data. And that's essentially how it started. And then all the CPU vendors realized very quickly, this is going to be even more powerful on the server side because that's where enterprises keep their sensitive data. At a very high level, this has been a shift in sort of computing architecture, right? And every time there's a shift in computing architecture, you need a software stack on top of it to essentially enable it, to make it easy to use this new computing architecture and to make it look the same across the different hardware solutions. The biggest example of this was virtualization and what VMware has done. Again, virtualization was this change in computer architecture. It allowed you to utilize servers better instead of you know, before VMware, we had, you know, 10% utilization of servers in the data center. And CPU vendors added the ability to virtualize, to create these virtual machines, to create better utilization, but nobody was really using it because it meant rewriting everything from scratch and, and nobody was going to do that. And what VMware did was build a software stack to make it super simple to virtualize anything. And within a few years, you know, everything was virtualized. I think there's almost no workloads running in an unvirtualized environment today. And we do the same for confidential computing. It's a huge shift in computer architecture. It provides a lot of value, but it, it's extremely difficult for organizations to go and rebuild everything to go use it. And what we've done is build a software stack to make it super simple to run anything in confidential computing. Got it. Interesting. It makes a lot of sense. So who are the actual target customers then? Is it the computing companies themselves or who's paying you and who are your customers? Or you know, what are examples of your customers? Today, we essentially have two types of customers. One is the essentially G2000. So large, you know, global 2000s that need to use this to, the number one use case with them is to move sensitive workloads or sensitive data to the cloud. Mm -hmm. For example, we're working with a very large bank to move PII data, you know, private information, private customer information to the cloud for the first time. So these are the type of use cases that we have. And then the other type of customers that we have are ISVs, uh, software vendors or mostly SaaS companies. And the reason they're using us is that they get, as part of the security review that they go through with their customers, is they get a question, which is, you know, are you going to have access to my data within your platform? And today they have to be on their back foot trying to kind of answer, you know, and kind of sell around that question, because of course they have access to customer data within their platform. But when they use our solution or when you use confidential computing, the, the answer to that becomes no, we don't have any access to your data within our platform and none of our employees have any access to your data. 
And that actually becomes a competitive advantage for them compared to their competitors. Fascinating. And what type of traction are you seeing and, and adoption are you seeing? Are there any numbers or metrics that you can share? Yeah, I can tell you that we're growing extremely, extremely fast. We're about uh, to quadrupling every year now, which is pretty phenomenal to see. And what was really surprising to me is just how fast extremely large organizations can move because of the value that it brings them. And we've closed deals with, you know, very, very large banks, you know, within a six month cycle, which is extremely, extremely fast compared to how these banks tend to move. And we're also getting extremely high within those banks. Uh, One of the banks we've gotten to board level visibility just because of what this enables you to do. This is such a fun, it's not just a security solution that allows you to reduce the risk a little bit. This essentially enables you to do things that you just couldn't before. So again, moving, embracing the cloud in a much, much stronger way. We're moving to new geographies. So we're getting very, very high level visibility, which is also very, very exciting for me to see. And what do you attribute to that success of being in a position to quadruple every year and experience that type of growth? What do you think you've gotten right? Because this space does have a lot of noise or just in general, I think cybersecurity does have a lot of noise in the market today. I guess, interestingly enough, I grew up in security, so I thought about us sort of as a security solution. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the way the customers are looking at us is not as a security solution, but more of as an infrastructure solution. And what was surprising to me is that we end up talking to the, the CIO or the infrastructure team, and not necessarily to the security team. This sort of becomes a way to, again, to make security as an enabler rather than a sort of a risk reduction or a blocker. And the reason why we're seeing this, again, we're not really, you know, compared to other security solutions. We, again, we sell to the infrastructure and the CIO organization. And I think that's been extremely helpful. And the other thing is that we're getting a lot of tailwinds from the public cloud and from the CPU vendors that are doing this. There's just a lot of... You know, when Microsoft is talking about this and Amazon is talking about this and Google, you know, Google Cloud is talking about this and Intel and AMD and NVIDIA, it all essentially helps us because customers are looking for a way to leverage this. And this is an amazing solution, you know, what the CPU vendors have built. But then when people want to start using this, they essentially have a choice. Either they go rebuild every application or they go, you know, use our platform. And the fact that all these very, very large companies are talking about this and they're talking to their customers about this has been extremely helpful to us. That makes a lot of sense. And what about market categories? What are your views when it comes to the market category that you're in? You know, there's one book that I always mention that I, when people talk about business books, and, and it's a book called Play Bigger. I don't know if you've read that book. Uh, of course. But it's a book, yeah, and it talks about category creation. And I think that's exactly what we're doing. Like I read this book and I said, well, this is exactly, exactly what we're doing. This is exactly the same challenges we're facing, but also the same potential outcome. And we're essentially creating a new a new category. I think confidential computing in general is a new category that's being created right now. And to me, the category creation piece is about teaching the world that there's sort of a new, better way of doing things. And to me, I share that all, a lot of securities about these are almost like band-aid solutions to try to mitigate the risk of the core problem of somebody having access to the infrastructure, has access to everything. This, you know, solves the core problem. So you can basically, you don't necessarily need all those sort of band-aid solutions. The, the people I've been using so far, there's a new, better way of doing things. And to me, that's sort of the definition of a new category. So again, that's yeah. where I think, I think, you know, VMware is a great example of that, you know, which I think we're kind of doing, I'm seeing a lot of similarities kind of what we're going through and what VMware went through in their early days. I think just like some Salesforce is another category creator, right? They kind of taught the world that, you know, SaaS made sense. It's, you know, SaaS makes more sense in software for solutions like these. And again, we're going down that same path of convincing people there's a better way of doing things. Yeah, we do uh, do a lot of work in category creation and study it a lot. And it, it certainly sounds like that's the opportunity here. I think what's unique about 
your company and everything that you've described here is there's already this shift that's underway and it truly is a different approach to solving this problem in, in a different way of doing things. A lot of the companies that I see out there who are trying to create categories, they're just essentially you know doing what the old category has always done in a slightly different or slightly better way. But you know, their market message is really just all about being better, faster, cheaper, which is very difficult to stand out. Whereas it looks like for you, it's completely different. It's a totally different way of approaching things. So I'm guessing that helps your category creation efforts a lot. It definitely is. And there's pros and cons to that approach, right? If you're doing something slightly better, faster, cheaper, then you kind of walk in and there's a budget aligned, right? And you can sort of need to convince people why to buy your product versus the competitor's product. But for us, there's no, usually we walk in and there's no budget allocated for confidential computing, right? We have to kind of go and convince people, say that there's this new thing, but it is going to make everything easier for you. It's going to enable things that you, you weren't able to do before. Once they kind of realize the value, then it becomes, again, it becomes you know, a conversation with very senior people very quickly. And it's just a great conversation to have without all the possibilities this this opens up, but it is a much, much more difficult sell cycle than just walking in into a category that's already already there and that the budget is approved, you know, exactly you need to talk to, the messaging has already been, you know, defined. It's a very, very different type of a, uh, you know, of a journey that we're on, but it's also more exciting, at least for me. Yeah, I think that's the downside of books like Play Bigger is it makes category creation sound so cool and sexy and amazing, but it doesn't really talk that much about the downsides and the risks. Like you were saying, it, it's difficult to convince someone to create a totally new line item for something they didn't know that they previously existed, especially you know, in this insane <laughs> environment that we're in right now. So that makes a lot of sense. So another follow-up question on that then for you, on day one or from day one, was it clear that it was going to be a category creation play or did that naturally just kind of happen organically as you started to bring this to market? Oh, that's a great question. I haven't thought about this. I can tell you when I read Play Bigger and this was, you know, probably a few years into a couple of years into the journey, just everything sort of clicked for me. So I didn't even think about things in sort of a category creation type of a thing. But I remember looking at there's all these sort of, you know, category maps, especially in the enterprise security that you can kind of, and I remember looking at the map and trying to kind of figure where we fit, where we fit. And I really couldn't, I say, you know, we can fit here, but we also fit here. And we also fit here. We're going to impact this. And it was just very clear to me that this was going to be very, very impactful, but it was hard to kind of place us in kind of an existing category. So again, obviously later when I kind of had the right was like the right terms to talk about us. Everything sort of clicked, but in the beginning, it was it was I didn't even think about it in those in those terms. If that makes sense. Yeah, that makes complete sense. You know, somewhat controversial question. Then, just in the in the discipline of category design, I see a lot of people debating this. What are your views on the importance of analysts in your efforts to create this category? Do you view that as mission critical to get Gartner and Forrester on board? Or is this something that can happen outside of Gartner and it doesn't matter if they end up you know, running with this category? Well, I definitely think the Gartner and Forrester and the analysts do have a role to play. They were an extremely important role to play in the ecosystem. And also the, the Gardner and Enforcer, they take kind of tend to name categories, right? Like when you create a new category, eventually the people that eventually kind of give it the stamp and then kind of name it are usually Gardner Enforcer or companies, other analyst firms. And they're definitely talking to the market. They're talking to customers, but there's sort of a, like a chicken and egg type of a thing because they're not going to, you know, talk to you or take you seriously until they hear enough about it from customers. But then there's some customers who are not going to buy or talk to you unless they hear about it from Gardner Enforcer. So it's always like this 
you know, balance of, you know, talking to customers, getting customers excited and having them, you know, talk to Gardner and Forrester or have customers kind of hear about this and ask, go ask Gardner and Forrester about, about a solution. And then you talking to, to the analysts, getting their, you know, feedback and advice because they're getting very close to the market, but also sort of, you know, explaining to them what you do and what you're seeing in the market as well. And it's always this balance. Again, I think they have a imp very important role to play in the ecosystem. But you kind of have to do it in kind of the right way in the right time. If you kind of go with an idea on like a, you know, a very early product with no customers to Garner and Forrester, they're not going to be that helpful to you. Makes a lot of sense. And that's, that's very helpful advice. Now let's talk about challenges. So as you brought this platform to market, what would you say has been your single greatest challenge and how'd you overcome it? Yeah, that's a, well, I can talk well, there's been a lot of challenges across a lot of different, <laughs> lot, a lot of different things. I'd say personally, and again, maybe this is kind of taking this to a different direction that your question was intended to, but to me, the most difficult thing is, again, like it's extremely difficult and extremely hard being, you know, a founder and, and especially a founder CEO. And it's, you kind of own the full thing, right? The buck kind of sort of stops the new. And to me, that's always been, you know, one of the biggest challenges. And it's very, it's a very lonely job, right? There's very, very few people that you can hurt. Again, there's just very few people you can talk to, or you can need to build yourself a support system of people you can talk to, I guess is a better way of, of talking about this. But it's still, I never used to kind of wake up at 4 a.m., you know, thinking about work before I started the company. And it does happen to me now that there's, I think this has always been sort of the biggest challenge. It's funny, I read this super interesting, super funny tweet that somebody wrote online, I forget who it was, uh, but they said that they, they, you know, they had trouble, you know, sleeping and they tried all these sort of things like, you know, complete darkness and trying to meditate before going to bed and no screens and all these, you know, melatonin and all these different things. And what eventually helped me is to stop being the CEO of my company. <laughs> What's the, uh, I think there was a Ben Hort quote around that too, right? Of like, he sleeps like a baby every night and he wakes up at 2 a.m. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that uh, certainly seems to be the case with yeah, a lot of the founders that we bring on. And you know, it's nice to hear you talk about the challenges of, you know, from your perspective as a CEO, as opposed to, you know, just like a you know, go-to-market challenge or something along those lines. One follow-up question then based on that, how did you go about, you know, building that network of, you know, is it your peers? Is it other CEOs that you're, you know, very close with to talk about some of these, you know, unique challenges in a, you know, safe, safe space? Or what have you done to, you know, to overcome that challenge? Yeah. So to me, it's a combination of two things. One is, uh, is my wife, which is, she's amazing. She's been extremely supportive throughout this journey. And, and she's sort of the, to be the go-to person that I can go talk to about anything. And she's, I know she's, you know, hundred percent, you know, on, 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 you know, on my side, wanting what's best for me personally which is great. But on top of that, it's been, yeah, other, you know, founder CEOs of companies and other, you know, roughly the same stage or that are a stage or two ahead of me, that's been extremely, extremely, you know, meaningful to go talk to them. And then just other advisors, you know, some of my investors, some of my investors, not my investors, but have been advisors to me. It's just been phenomenal to have sort of a group of people that you can go talk to. Where I learned this a lot was early on, we went through Y Combinator. Mm -hmm. uh, and what was really amazing about Y Combinator is that it's essentially a group of, you know, founders that are all working in different companies, but they're all roughly in the same stage. And the fact that you can have essentially a peer group that you can go talk to and get advice, and yeah, none of them are sort of in the weeds of your company, but they're roughly going through the same challenges you are. And it's just a great to have a group of people you can go talk to and get advice. And some of them have gone through this. Some, again, they're very smart people that can give you very good advice, even if they haven't gone through this. And I've been through a bunch of these sort of founder CEO type of groups. 
And it's always been extremely, extremely valuable. So I now have a bunch of these, you know, peer groups that I'm part of. And that's also extremely, yeah, it's been extremely helpful. And I, this is one of my recommendations to people is find that, you know, peer group that you can go, you know, talk to and get advice from. And is this like a formalized peer group for you? Like, do you meet once a month at, you know, the same spot and, and run the same questions? Is it a Slack group? Is it a text group? Like how formalized is that for you? So the ones I'm in is sort of like a WhatsApp group. One is a group that we actually do meet every, it's not every month, but it's, let's say it's roughly every quarter or so that we, we get together and meet and talk about things on, you know, twice a year. It's like an, an offsite retreat where you kind of go away for the weekend and, and talk about multiple things. And then with some of the people, I created an even stronger personal relationship where we, we just chat and, and I can, you know, just call them every time I have something that I, uh, you know, so some big question that comes up or something that I'm not sure how to handle. And I can just call them and get their advice and thoughts about something. And this has been extremely, extremely helpful. Nice. That's amazing. I can see how that would be very impactful. Last question here for you before we wrap. So let's zoom out into the future. Three years from today, what's the company look like? Essentially, I think we're looking at the company, we're sort of following, you know, VMware footsteps to some extent and some of the things that we do. So essentially the way I look at this is we build this pretty amazing platform and we have a, let's say, two years lead on the technology side, you know, looking at other competitors that are not trying to follow us. To me, a lot of it now is about go-to-market execution. And that's the phase I'm working on now is, is essentially getting as many customers as possible, even with, you know, sort of a small, you know, landing use case, because once you're an infrastructure solution, customers are not going to use multiple infrastructure solutions for things. So I'm essentially looking to kind of grow that footprint as well as grow the partner. We have a partnership with AWS, we have a partnership with Azure. So I'm growing these partnerships with the public clouds. And to me, that's essentially where we're going to be in a few years, we're becoming sort of the, the default for confidential computing. And anybody that wants to use confidential computing knows that Anjuna is the platform to go do that. That's the best way to leverage this new category. Amazing. Well, unfortunately, that's all we're going to have time to cover for today's interview. Before we wrap up, if people want to follow on with your journey as you continue to build, where's the best place for them to go? So obviously, they obviously can come to our website, Anjuna.io. In terms of my personal journey, I you know I do these podcasts every now and again, but I don't have any sort of blog or anything that I can talk about the journey. But um you can always happy to connect to people. You know, you can ping me over on, you know, LinkedIn or my email, which is essentially my, my first name at anjuna.io. Uh, and always happy to connect with people and uh, especially any, any entrepreneurs that, you know, want advice or help. I'm always excited to give back. So many people helped me throughout my journey. I'm always, always happy to, to give back and help people that are uh, getting started. Amazing. Hopefully you don't get too much spam for saying that. Uh, we appreciate you coming on. Uh, you know, thanks for talking about what you're building and the vision here. This is all super exciting and it's been super informational and I've learned a lot from this. So let's keep in touch and we wish you best of luck in executing on this vision. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right. Keep in touch.